The Holy Gospel according to St. John, the third chapter. Now there was a Pharisee named Nicodemus, a leader of the Jews. He came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who has come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do apart from the presence of God. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God without having been born from above. Nicodemus said to him, How can anyone be born after having grown old? Can one enter a second time into the mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the Spirit. What is born of the flesh is flesh, and what is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be astonished that I say to you, you must be born from above. The wind blows where it chooses, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born in the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you a teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and testify to what we have seen, and yet you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you about earthly things, and you do not believe, how can I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ascended to heaven except the one who has descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of the Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the cosmos, the whole universe, that he gave his only Son, that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but have eternal life. Indeed, God did not send the Son into the universe, the whole world, to condemn the whole world, the universe, but in order that the world might be saved through him. The Gospel of the Lord. Please be seated. A professor of pre preaching that I know once started a sermon by saying, I didn't have a t enough time to write a short one, so this is going to be a little bit long. This was not the case with me. I, I really have worked on this all week and tried to shorten it down and never got any shorter. So I guess the spirit was telling me something. So bear with me. It's almost a cliche to say that life is one transition to another. Nevertheless, there are some transitions that are more important than others, some that can either set you on the trajectory in life where your heart wants to lead you, or on, the other, or on the other hand, can throw you into dark places that you were never meant to go, places what the author John Milton was called, the slog of despond. Transitions are important. One such period of transition comes when you graduate from high school 
and go off into the world. Whether you're going into the military, or whether you're going to work nine to five, or whether you're going off to college, it's a transition where you leave your friends and your family behind and you go somewhere else where it's all new. When I was the Lutheran chaplain at Syracuse University, one of the things that we chaplains all paid attention to were the incoming freshman class. For all of us knew from experience that these were the most vulnerable students we had. Many of them came from small towns where their class, their incoming class, was larger not only than the little town that they grew up, perhaps, but even perhaps the county that they grew up in. These were also people that suddenly found themselves with people who were different races, different creeds, different financial and, and economic backgrounds. It was just a hodgepodge that they found themselves in. Some of the challenges that they had were caused by some of the religious groups on campus. Even though the university had a policy that every religious group had to do, they had to register first of all, and they had to sign an agreement of non-proselytization and to respect everyone else's religious boundaries. Some of them found ingenious ways of working around that. For example, the Moonies, because they had been barred from campus, set up a coffee shop and bookstore right on the edge of campus, right on the public side of the street, and didn't have anything on there that indicated that they were Moonies. It was a nondescript name. I, I don't remember what it was, but it was you know, kind of generic. And if you, by chance, went in there because they offered free coffee and donuts, and that's certainly attractive for kids, if you went in there and were looking around, Suddenly, there'd be other kids that would come over to you and say, how you doing? You know, do you have any friends? Would you like some friends? And pretty soon, these kids were inviting you to go to New York City, five hours away, on a trip that weekend. Now, think of it. You're the only non-Moody in a car of seven or eight on a five-hour trip. It wasn't unusual for us chaplains get a call from somebody at one of the rest stops on the New York Thruway saying, help, I've been taken captive. And we'd have to go and rescue them. Or the Mormons, which typically go two by two, would go as two students into two dorms because they were allowed to, and knock on doors and try to hand out books, and even leave the Book of Mormon in the uh, study halls, and, and even, although the library tried to keep this out, they would put them in various stacks of the, of the library so that people would stumble across them. But perhaps the most problematic, especially for me, were the fundamentalist Christian groups who felt that any regulations against them were against their relig religious practices. And what they would do is they would come up on campus and assault, literally assault, a student saying, have you been born again? If you died tonight, where would your soul be? Do you know that you're saved? 
Have you been born again? Well, you know, although that question by itself, it may be a little bit off-putting. There's nothing wrong with it. It seems rather straightforward, like, do you like liver and onions? But that's not the point of the question. The point was anything but innocent and friendly. It was used as a cudgel, a battering ram to cause doubt and anxiety in the minds of vulnerable students at a major, at a major transition of their lives. To steer them away from what they understood as Christianity and steer them to a certain way of understanding Christianity in which punishment was supreme and love was non-existent. Have you been born again? That, Christian, that question does not arise from out of nowhere, but rises out of the one, two possible translations of our gospel text this morning. As our gospel opens up, Nicodemus, a Pharisee, a member of the temple council, comes to see Jesus at night because as a leader of the temple, he doesn't want to be seen with Jesus for all the commotion that might cause. And so he comes to Jesus and flatteringly says, teacher, we know that you're a teacher of God's word because only God can allow you to do the things that you do. But Jesus is not flattered by that, but he cuts to the chase. Truly, truly, I tell you, says Jesus, no one can see the kingdom of God unless. Unless what? Well, here we have a decision to make. In the New Revised Standard Version of the Bible, which we as Lutherans and other mainline Protestant churches use, it says, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born from above. However, if you go to the theologically conservative churches, the passage reads, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born anew. So which is it? How can we be either born from above or born anew? The problem is the Greek word that's in there can be translated either way. So we have to look for other clues as to whether Jesus is talking about being born from above or being born again. Certainly for Nicodemus, it's the latter, as far as he knows. How can anybody be born after growing old? He asks incredulously. Here he's thinking literally, can a man go back into his mother's womb and be born a second time? Well, even nine-year-olds can see the problem with that here. A pastor once gave a sermon about being born again and when he got home, his nine-year-old daughter said, Daddy, what does it mean to be born again? Did Jesus actually mean that we have to be born from our mother again? He looked at her and pointed to her three-year-old brother. Do you think that Tommy could be born if he crawled back into mommy's tummy? He asked. Well, his daughter looked at him and started to smile. No, she said, he wouldn't fit. Besides, he wouldn't be able to see anything in there either. 
even this nine-year-old knows that you can't take this passage literally. Jesus, by his answer, however, makes it clear he's not talking about physical birth. No one can enter this kingdom of God without being born of water and the spirit. Was born of flesh, is flesh, was born of spirit, is spirit. Even this is hard for Nicodemus to understand. So Jesus makes it clear that he's talking about a spiritual rebirth. Do not be astonished, I say to you, you must be born from above. The wind blows where it chooses, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. This gift of being born in God's Spirit. This gift of being born in the Spirit from God's, God's Spirit that comes from above. The Spirit that comes to us at baptism. This gift is what Jesus is talking about. To Nicodemus, and often to us, even as we hear these words, we might still be confused. How can this be? And what does this mean? What is this water a sign of? So Jesus gives Nicodemus a concrete example of what this must mean. He says, do you remember when Moses, out in the desert, had people dying and, and whose faith were being were being troubled by the, these deaths, God said to Moses, put a serpent, bronze serpent, on a pole, hold it up for people, and as they view the serpent, they will be cured. So I, when I'm lifted up on the cross, as people see me, as people understand me being on the cross for their sake, will obtain God's mercy. Remember what happened of old, so you can see what will happen in the future. Then Jesus utters the two most profound verses in the New Testament. The one is so familiar, we see it on bumper stickers, so familiar that we see it at football games when somebody holds us the sign, John 3.16. We all know it, for God so loved the world, universe, that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And I specifically use the word universe, although we translated world, the, the Greek word is cosmos, and from which we get our word cosmology, or what the, uh, the Russians used to call the cosmonauts, right? Um, and the series by Carl Sagan, Cosmos. But you understand, and certainly people back then understood it's a whole ball of wax, the whole ordered universe that Jesus is talking about. For God so loved the whole thing that he gave his only son to reconcile the whole world back to God. It's the same thing that Isaiah was talking about when he talks about the peace, peaceable kingdom where the lion will lie down with the sheep and the young child will be able to play with a, with a serpent without being bitten. That's the kind of 
reconciliation that Jesus is talking about here. A friend of mine, Paul Santmeyer, has been writing about Christian ecology for over 40 years. He just wrote a new uh, book called um, Ecotheology Testament, uh, where he sums up his 40-year journey into, into doing this. And he begins it with this verse that he was given at his own confirmation, the one that we know so well, for God so loved the world. But he insists that we really should, again, see it as God so loved the universe, the cosmos, that he gave his only son. John's Gospel uses this word cosmos over a hundred times. That's how important the idea of this whole universe being loved by God is. This love of God is so big and so broad and so vast that it's not just for exclusive few people who follow exclusive narrow doctrine, but rather it's written large for everyone and every creature and everything in this world. The theologian Caroline Lewis noted that John 3.16 is perhaps the well -known, most well-known Bible verse in the world, and yet it is the most destructive because it's an assertion of exclusiveness rather than of God's abundant love. A verse that tells people if we hear it wrongly, a verse that tells people that other people are damned, but we, the chosen ones, are saved. Rather than talking about God's abundant grace, it talks about God's punishment. Therefore, she says, we can't see verse 15, 16 by itself, but must read it with verse 17 as well. For God so loved the whole earth, the whole world, the whole cosmos they gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And that this whole thing, this whole ball of wax is for everybody. For he came into the world not to condemn the world, the universe, the cosmos, but to save the whole thing. God will save you. That's true. But if you think that God is only going to save you and no one else, I would say that we are too narrow in our thinking and that leads us in the same trouble that some of these other groups do. To say that God loves the whole cosmos, the whole salvation, is not a theological statement. It's not a theory of how we are saved, but rather it's an affirmation of God's activity in the world that began with the first creation and continues even through today and far into the future. It's a specific act of God, or maybe even better, specific acts of God, God's love for the whole world. It's what God does. It's what God is. And so in Jesus' time, it was the act of God 
calling a young maiden and saying, you're going to be the mother of my son. It's the love of God to a foreign woman, a Samaritan, who says, you are worthy at God's table. It's the love of God that goes to a person paralyzed from birth and says, you're not decrepit, your sins do not cause your illness, but rather I will cure you. Same thing with a man blind from birth. God loves Lazarus, who is in the tomb for four days. And God, yes, God even loves and forgives Peter, who abandons Jesus at the cross. This is the activity of a saving God. God's love is so effusive, so overwhelming that it cannot be tied down or narrowed down by human desire for exclusivity or one-upmanships. You've all seen the picture or the t-shirt, right, that says, God loves you, but he loves me best. That's not the God we worship. We need to accept people as we have been accepted to love as we have been loved, and to give as we have been given. In this time of Lent, therefore, as we give things up for Lent, one of the things I think we most need to give up is our preconceived notions of who God loves and who God has to exclude. It's his choice, not ours. He loves the whole cosmos including you and me. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon from Holy Trinity Evangelical Lutheran Church in Newington, New Hampshire, part of the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. You can find us at htelc.com. And don't forget, you are loved. <laughs>